Oh, that's the end. You don't want that yet. There you go. Oh, one does. Huh. Clearly heard about the length of my sermons. Today, we want to celebrate King Jesus, that he's risen and he's alive. And we want to celebrate him in some pretty profound ways. Um, I want to do things a little different, just because I'm an odd guy. And I want us to focus on the cross and to focus on his risen nature. Off, he's come off the cross and he's out of the grave. And then we're going to take a little pause in the middle. And then we're going to talk about how we live in light of that. Because I think a lot of us who've been walking with Christ for a while sometimes forget that we should be living for Christ. And some of you, if you have been antagonistic about the church, or maybe kind of had some problems with the dreaded hypocrites in church, which is all of us, if we're honest, um, then I think it's because believers in Christ haven't lived in light of the cross. And that causes lots of confusion. We, uh, every week, you're going to hear us talk about the cross and talk about Jesus. So we're going to talk about grace every single week here. Um, so if you ever are in a church and you hear a good lecture about some stuff and there's no point to Jesus, then that's a lecture. And that's not church. And it's not sermon. It needs to drive us to Jesus. And so we're going to do that in two ways this morning. So if you would, let's pray and then we'll jump right in. Heavenly Father, thanks for this day. Thanks for... Um, the ability to come into this space, to sing praises to you, and then to spend time in your word. And I pray, Lord, that we would understand there's no such thing as coincidence, that you've made multiple divine appointments on this very morning for people to come into this house, um, to come into this building, to sing praise, to open your word and be transformed by your son. I pray we'd all leave here transformed by the truth of the cross. We love you. Amen. I do have one announcement I forgot to make. Um, next Sunday night, we're having a newcomer's kind of dinner at our house. And if you would like to know a little bit more about the church, a little bit more about us as a church, or if you just want to eat some awesome cooking at my home, then there's a sign-up sheet out in the hallway. Um, just sign up. That way we can give you directions and all that. It's in the on one of the tables. So sign up, and I'm sure we'll be serving some kind of Mexican food because that's the famous food in our house and what my son loves to eat. And he rules our house, so that's how. I'm kidding. It's just good food. Okay, today, Jesus, Easter, and I kind of shared and alluded to in when I was kind of praying for communion, Easter's kind of a big deal for me, because I was 17 years old at an Easter service when I really understood the truth of who Jesus is. And so I, I make no mistake, or I'm, I'm, I understand the weight of coming to church on Sunday, on Easter Sunday. Um, some of you, this is just another Sunday, you're coming to celebrate the king that you worship every day, and some of you got drug here by your family. And so I'm thankful that your family drug you here, um, but I also think it's a divine appointment that's been made, and you're here. So sit back and hold on. We start with the cross. We celebrate Easter because we're justified by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. You don't earn your salvation. We don't celebrate things like that. Like, do you celebrate the paycheck that you earn? Or do you celebrate the bonus you get that you didn't know was coming? Like, you just, well, yeah, I put in my 40 hours. Well, you don't come home, honey, guess what? I got paid the same thing this week as last week. It's awesome. That's how salaries work. Ah, oh, it's amazing. Instead, when you get the check and all of a sudden someone's just written you a check for an amount of money you didn't expect to come. 
or you get a tax return check, or you get a promotion that's unexpected. You get the performance review, and you get the 3% cost of living increase. You don't go, yes, I'm right back where I was last year, but inflation kept me there, right? You, nobody does that. Instead, you're like, I got my 3% and 10000 Like we, We're excited about the free gift. We're not excited about what we're owed. And so the idea of the cross and what Jesus did on the cross was that he paid our penalty. A right and justice God cannot just let sin go. If he just let sin go, then he wouldn't be God. We would never worship a God that said, you know what, it doesn't really matter. Just do whatever you want. I say I'm holy, but I'm never going to hold you accountable to that. Like what happens in our homes, you parents in the room, when you have all these rules and you never follow them, how fast do your kids just stop? They don't even care, right? They aren't going to follow them. Jesus was the propitiation, the payment for our sin. God is right and just for having penalties for sin. So Jesus justifies us. It's a legal term. By grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. Does anything in there say because of you alone? No. You don't earn his love. It's a free gift he gives to all of us. His only demand is that we put our faith and trust in him. He essentially says, let me take the wheel. Thank you, Carrie Underwood. He says, let me take control. Let me take control of your life. Not in a follow me kind of way, like do whatever I say, but in a literal sit next to me, partner with me, come with me, be with me, let me lead you through this together. But it's in his faith that he gives us in the grace that's poured on us through Jesus alone. You don't earn this. It's not something you can earn. Sin has no wage which Christ has not paid. He's paid the price for anything you've done. There was a time when I felt like I really had to measure up. I don't know why I did this, but I was, came to a saving faith in Jesus Christ on an Easter Sunday. And all of a sudden, I bought a whole new wardrobe of khakis the next week. Because that's what you're supposed to do, right? Clearly, I've not followed that since that day forward. But that's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to just, right? That's, it's just church world. It's what you do. You get a giant Bible that you need a forklift to carry, and that's what you're supposed to do. And then I begin to think, well, I've got all these things I've got to do. Because I'm still a mess inside. My past haunts me. My past makes me not, didn't make me, I didn't want to go around any of the friends that I had had, the things I had done in high school. I didn't want any part of it. I felt nothing but guilt and shame. And then I had to start serving. I felt like I had to serve my guts out so that I could earn my salvation. Do you know how tiring that is? To live a life where you think you're constantly trying to pay back a debt that you can never repay. It's so detrimental to our joy. It robs us of our joy. It robs us of our relationship with Jesus. Because we're always trying to earn a love that's a gift. And instead, we should rest in the gift. And that's why there's nothing you've done that can separate you from God. The only unforgivable sin that we see in the scriptures is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Which just essentially means a consistent rejection of the Holy Spirit. I want nothing to do with you, God. And that will come to a point over years and years and years and years where God will finally say, okay, I'm going I'm to stop trying to woo you to myself. 
I'm going to let you have the eternity separated from me that you desire. That's the only unforgivable sin. It's essentially God saying, you want it your way? I'm going to let you have it your way. He's not going to force himself upon you. Everything else that we've collectively done in this room is nothing that hasn't been paid for on the cross. He's proven his love for you and for me on that cross. So there's nothing we can do to pay it back. Zero. That was a hard thing for me to swallow for a long time. Then I started thinking about the deep thoughts that I had for God before I was ever saved. And it really, it comes in waves. My parents didn't take me to church. I grew up in southern Indiana. We had purchased three acres of land. And we had a house trailer on it. And we were going to build our dream home. My dad had plans, going to build a dream home. In the midst of this plan, we, uh, my parents got divorced. And so that plan never came to fruition. I remember my earliest thoughts laying in that southern Indiana field, staring up at the clouds in the middle of summer, school's out, my brother and I are just running around in the woods, goofing off, and I'm just in some kind of deep thought for a 10-year-old kid, looking at the clouds, not growing up in church, having real no, back, no background in church, going, man, there has to be a God. Who could make all of this? Could this really just be happenstance? Just water vapor in the air makes this cloud and, you know, it is, am I here for that? Am I here for no reason whatsoever? I had a pet dog. All my dog cared about was who's going to feed him, who's going to pet him, and who's going to let him go run around and tear things up. And some of you are more versed in the biological fields than me. I'm a social science, philosophy, theology guy. But I think we could probably have a very short conversation about do animals really like, contemplate their navels. Does a wolf go, you know, should I be eating this? I don't know if I should have killed this antelope. I'm not sure. I, I grieve what I've just done. I think I'll become a vegetarian. I don't think an, animals don't do that. They don't process like that. We're different than animals. We contemplate. We think deeply. And that started very young for me. And it continued on through my life. And I think we all have this because God made us this way. This is a section of Area 10 off Sand Hill Road where I attempted to find an elk to put a stick into. And it never happened. But I remember this moment where I'd been hiking for like seven miles and I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. I still don't know yet. It's not like hunting in Indiana where you just sit in a chair and they come under you and you just jump on them. It's not like that here. And I'm up there frustrated, doubting my manhood. Can I do this? What's going on? And then I stopped in this spot and I just looked out over the Laramie Valley. I just sat there. And I, again, for this moment, just like when I was a 10-year-old kid, I'm contemplating, like, man, God, you made all of this. Like, you really made, like, I'm standing here in awe of this massive valley that I'm standing on top of. That five years ago, I never would have imagined even peering off of this place. We had been skiing in Colorado, been on top of some mountains, but not deep in the woods. And like, this is amazing. Every time I see the ocean. I didn't see the ocean until I was about 13 and it was in Northern California, so I didn't really get into the ocean. We just kind of looked at it. I remember standing there going, wow. 
Look how big this is. And it happens every time. See the ocean? Like, I feel really small. And God put that in us for a reason. We're meant to feel small in comparison to everything that he's made and the bigness of who he is. So even if you haven't come to a saving relationship with Jesus, I bet most of us are in awe of a lot of things. The first time I held my children, the first time I held my nephew, because he was born before Eli was born, and thinking, this is my brother's kid. Like, I'm an uncle. Like, he has, he's got a kid now. Like, my little brother that we fought, and I was really mean to him, and how proud I am of him, and how good a dad he's going to be, and holding this precious life that wasn't even my own. How could you not be in awe of all that God has created? And then several years ago, um, in 2007, I was at this place. This is at the Alluvial Fan in Estes Park, Rocky Mountain National Park. And I was in a real dark place. Um, I had been serving in ministry for about three years. I quit my teaching job, became a pastor, and I was in this really dark place. I had gone on staff. I had been in leadership in a church, but then I was on staff at a church, and there was some real conflict with the staff, and I was ready to just quit. Like I just go, I'll go back to teaching or I'll go into sales. I think I sold everything under the sun before I got my education degree. So I'll just go do retail. I'll do something. I can figure something out. Because the weight that I was feeling, it wasn't worth it anymore. Like this is just crushing me. And God has me respond to an ad. And I end up in Colorado with 20 guys I never met before. And one of the key things we did was we went and spent three hours on the mountains just praying. And so in this spot in September of 2007... God spoke. Not audibly. I wish he would do that for me. That would be awesome. But he doesn't speak. I, he just spoke to my heart like, Mike, you've known me for years. Every time you're in this place and you feel small, I do that on purpose for a reason. So you won't think that you're really in charge of this thing. I want you to know that I'm the one who's put this desire to see the big, wide-open spaces in your heart because I want you to constantly be reminded that you're really tiny and it's not about you. And I came home reinvigorated, more confident in my call, on fire, blown away. I even took a picture of my foot there. I can shamelessly admit that sometimes I'm that guy. I don't like taking selfies, so I, haven't, I don't own a selfie stick. And if you do, I'm not judging you, but seriously. But, so, but in that spot, I took a picture of my hiking shoe and this river, and I put it in my journal, because I'm a nerd, and my journal is something that's on my phone. And I remember, I can go back and show it to you, but it's kind of personal, so I won't do that. And I'm just like, Lord, I don't. I feel your presence. What am I doing here? Like, I, I know I'm called to serve you, but this is hard, and I don't know. And, and I just journaled it. And then we moved to Wyoming. And we're here about seven months after we moved here. And I'd gotten a phone call after we moved here by the men who lead this retreat. And they asked me, they said, well, since you're two hours from Estes, would you like to help lead some of these trips? And I was... Super honored. And so I went. I went back to the exact same place, and I took another picture. 
And in this moment, a believer in Christ, a servant of his, a pastor, I was feeling really overwhelmed. I'd moved my family to a state 18 hours away from our home in Indiana, 23 hours away from our last home in West Virginia. I'm now the pastor of a church. I'd never been the lead pastor of a church before, feeling the weight of a congregation, feeling the weight of people's souls, the weight of this town, the weight of college students I was speaking to. Like I just, There was this heaviness, this seriousness. And so when I show up and I'm sitting in that same spot, and this spot in the alluvial fan, um, you can't hear yourself think, really. It's so loud right up against the water, and that's what I wanted. I wanted something so deafening loud that would block out everything from my ears. And I'll never forget walking away going, God just showing me again. I've got this. This isn't about you. If I brought you here for a reason, then I'm going to keep you here for a reason, and I've got you, so get over yourself. Like, okay, all right, so then you come back. And then about nine months later, I was in the same spot. I didn't really realize until this came to me a couple days ago that I'd done this, and now I'm kind of ashamed. But the shoes have changed, but the location is the same. My grandmother passed away in June, and I was back in this place in September. I think it was maybe October, the next fall. And I went there with a whole different weight of stuff. The weight of my family, the weight of my extended family, the loss of my last grandparent, just kind of in a personal, not weight of the gospel, and weight, but weight even personally, like, oh, my kids are getting bigger, am I leading them well, am I loving my wife well, am I... Right? Just all this weight. And again, God takes me to this wide open space, something he's created, and he's like, again, would, could you just get over yourself? I got this. Trust me. And that's what I'm begging you on Easter Sunday. God isn't going to take away all your doubts. He won't. Matter of fact, he tells us of a man, a father, who says, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Which is a powerful statement to say, I've got this much trust, I don't really have it all figured out, so help me see it. And so I'm begging you, as the emotion of Easter Sunday kind of rolls through a church, don't push him away. He will faithfully show you himself over and over and over again. I will not promise he'll give you all the answers. There's some questions of Scripture that I have for God that I'm just kind of holding on to till I see Him, and then He'll probably I probably won't care because I'll be in the presence of God. But I don't have it all figured out. So on Easter Sunday, I wanted to read to you ten gifts of the resurrection, and then we'll move into Romans 12. Number one, a Savior can never die again. A Savior who can never die again, from Romans 6, 9. Repentance, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins, Acts 5. A new birth from 1 Peter 1. According to his great mercy, God the Father has caused us to be born again. Forgiveness of sins from 1 Corinthians 15. If Christ has not, has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sin. The gift of the Holy Spirit, this Jesus God raised up, and all that we are are witnesses. 
being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He's poured out this that yourselves are seeing and hearing from Acts 2. Number 6. We've been in Romans for a while. This should sound familiar. Who is to condemn? There's no condemnation for the elect. Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. A personal fellowship in his protection from Matthew 28. Proof of his coming judgment in Acts 17. Salvation from the future wrath of God, 1 Thessalonians 1 and Romans 5. And our own resurrection from the dead. We know that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. He loves you more than you could ever imagine. And I would beg you to stop trying in this world of trying to be perfect and instead just rest in the knowledge that he loves you, that he loves you more than you can imagine. And if you have just a little bit of that trust, he'll unveil the rest to to you as you grow older, as you grow deeper in a relationship with him. He'll give you the answers. So I want to pray for us all, and then we're going to spend a little time in Romans 12. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that the truth of the good news of your Son, Jesus Christ, would sink into our hearts. We live in an outdoor playground that you created. All we have to do is drive down Harney Avenue and we can see the massive display of the snowies in front of us. And we will be brought to awe. We can spend just a little time in all that you've created and we'll put it all over Facebook. We'll have pictures of stuff all over the place of how beautiful creation is. But please, Lord, don't let it stop there. Help that desire to feel small grow in us to the point where we open our hearts to the truth of who you are, that you're the king of the universe who spoke it all into existence and you went to the cross for everyone in this room, that there's no one in this room that's too far from God that you can't grab a hold of and call a child. Help us to know that deep in our hearts, Lord, and help us to rest knowing that we're saved by your son Jesus. We love you. Amen. Now, if you believe that, if you're here on Easter Sunday because you believe that Jesus Christ is alive, it should evoke an emotional response. You don't have the option of just going, meh, I want a Reese egg. It's Easter. That's all I care about. I mean, those are great. I will eat three or four of them this afternoon. But that should not be the response that comes out of us. So I found a video. I don't know if it's been on around the Internet or not, but it's new to me. Um, kind of trying to put a modern twist on a reaction that I think we should have more of in light of the cross.
wasn't a... Dude, no way! I told you! You're not going to believe what just happened. Long ago, this is what they felt like when it happened. And today, it's how we should feel too. Because what it meant for them, it means for us. So think about the disciples after Good Friday in two days. He's dead. The despair. They're hiding in the upper room. Thomas is out somewhere else. He's out somewhere else because he is totally distraught, messed with. He doesn't know what's happening. He's an emotional wreck. And the disciples are in a room, totally blown away. And then they get the word. Some ladies go to the tomb. They open it. Well, it's already open. They get to the tomb to take care of Jesus' body a little more, and he's gone. They run back and declare he's risen. A couple of the disciples want to see it for themselves. They run and they're blown away. Within weeks, after Jesus is with them for 40 days, he ascends to heaven. Then the day of Pentecost comes. The Holy Spirit descends upon the disciples in the upper room. And Peter throws out a sermon with a boldness that 3,000 people plus come to believe in Jesus Christ as Lord. Cowards after Good Friday. Bold proclaimers of the risen King Six weeks later. How does that happen? It happens because they had a complete and total change of life with the truth that he's risen. Does that happen in us? Do we really live like that? He's alive. I should tell everybody. He's alive. Why am I so worried? He's alive. Why, should, why do I need to go to a, a mountaintop to find him again? Should I have that every day? Like, come on, he's alive. Shouldn't we be jumping up and down, dancing for joy? He's alive. And that's what Paul was trying to get the people in Rome, he's writing the letter to the church in Rome, to understand. We see pretty fast in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. So Romans 12, 1 is a clear summation, and it gets into the last chapters of the book of Romans, is about Christian living. But the first 11, chapters 1 to 11, are all about the cross, grace, the truth of the gospel. You're free of your sin. There's therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Over and over and over and over again. You've been chosen. You've been elected. He's not letting go of you over and over and over again. And then he says, there's only one logical response. Your whole life. But he doesn't start with a rule book. He starts with the mercies. He starts with the mercies of God. That's why you should never be told a bunch of rules to follow before you ever come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ because they mean nothing to you. You're never going to seek a life of holiness. You're never going to seek a life that makes much of Christ and less of yourself if you don't have an understanding of the mercy first. You have to understand you've been bought with a price. Mercy is for you. Then you live in light of that. If you just try to follow all the rules and do all these things, you're just going to be worn out. That's working for your salvation. Instead, Paul addresses the church in Rome, brothers, 
by the mercies of God, because of the cross, because of Easter Sunday, present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, this passage has been often misquoted because you'll start talking about, well, this is why, you know, you shouldn't smoke because your body should be an acceptable worship. This is why don't ever get a tattoo because your body needs to be clean and shouldn't have any, it's unacceptable. Um, make sure you, you know, don't eat any, you know, watch your trans-saturated, whatever, hypoglycemic fat, whatever stuff. Don't eat red number five or yellow 17. I don't know what they are, but because then Jesus won't love you, you should be, right? That has nothing to do with what's going on in this text. What he's saying is the logical response to the cross is for your life to be a living sacrifice. And yeah, some of those things that we'll talk about and people try to proof text, those are dumb. Like it's, you're smoking seven packs of cigarettes a day, that's dumb. Is, is it sin and going to send you to hell? Probably no, it's not sin and it's not going to send you to hell, but it's dumb, right? But it's not, like that's not what's going on here. What's going on here is that your whole life should be a living sacrifice. That means it's every single day acceptable to God. Does it say perfection? Of course not. But it says every day should be lived thinking about how you're going to honor God with your life. Complete and total devotion. Now, for honest, that's a pretty tough thing to do, isn't it? Can you all live with complete and total devotion to Christ every single day? Like you don't almost wreck into someone when you're driving on I-25 with your children on spring break and maybe a choice word slips out of your mouth. And you're like, oh, the kids are in the back, uh, right? Not that I would ever do that. Doesn't I mean, that kind of stuff, it doesn't mean perfection. What it means is that this day and every day, because Christ saved me from my sin, I'm going to live for him. I'm going to live for him more today than I did yesterday, and I'm going to try my hardest to put him first. And I'm going to fail miserably. And I'm going to mess it up, but it doesn't mean I, I get back up again. It's another song. I'm going to get back up again and try again. I'm going to keep going because Jesus is all that matters to me. A living sacrifice. To be a living sacrifice means to be fully at God's disposal. Not passively, but to actively say, whatever you ask of me, Lord. Whatever you ask. This happens in our house in some kind of funny ways. Like, um, I'll call Amber on like a Tuesday, or I'll put it in the calendar and forget to tell her. And we share a calendar. And all of a sudden she gets a notification that I've invited someone over for dinner. She's like, what? Um, or, and usually there's a little bit of, have you looked at the calendar? I'm like, yeah, but you know, I think we need to have them over. There's something and we need to, you know, or hey, I got to go have lunch. Don't you remember we're doing this? And there's some flexibility in our life because we know that serving the king is more important than, you know, even our family time. Although our family time is important and we try to carve out that, but there's times when I have to say, sorry kids, I got to roll. There's been times after church when I need to go visit someone in the hospital, something's happened and Amber has a meeting, and so now all of a sudden I've got, you know, 20 kids, and we just use the church bus. It wasn't a church bus, but it was a lot of kids. Well, I need to go to the hospital because someone's family members just passed, so what do we do? I set him in the waiting room. Eli's the oldest. You're in charge. I've got to go be with this family. My kids are, being, are growing up into an understanding that life isn't about them. It's not about their sports. It's not about their happiness. It's not about that. It's not about us and our home. It's about... 
It's about Christ. And we're going to bend, and sometimes we have to be firm, and some things we can't, but we're going to follow Christ with our whole lives. So when the calendar alert hits my phone, and I see that Amber's going to be gone, or she's going to meet with someone on like at 4 o'clock on a Tuesday, she doesn't have to tell me that, hey, guess what? I'm going to pick up the kids. I'm going to take them to gymnastics. I'm going to figure out something with food, probably fast food, because I'm not a good cook. And there's going to be something go on there, and it's not gonna, I'm not going to go, oh, I really wanted to sit on the couch tonight and watch The Flash. Like, come on. IU was playing, and I should have been home watching IU get beat by 20 points. And instead, we were, you know, with some friends. Like, man, I should have just said no to that. Like, that's not going to ha- I don't even, I don't watch a whole lot of football, basketball anyway. But, right? Like, it's not what you do. Life isn't about all of these things. It's about Christ and honoring him with our lives. So when he says, holy, acceptable to God, your act of worship, he's making a very logical conclusion. Paul is one of the most logical, systematic theologians you're going to see in the scriptures. In light of chapters 1 to 11, how else are you going to respond? Thank you, Lord, for saving me. Thank you, Lord, for taking away my sin. I've got my own plans for the next 30 years. I'll check up with you when I die. That's an illogical way to live. And that's how what Paul's addressing. Our whole lives should be an act of worship. He continues, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you have made discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Two words here, they're kind of, counterposed against each other. Conformity and transforming, transformation. Do not be conformed to the world. To conform to something is outward appearance. When you're conforming yourself, you're conforming yourself to an outward appearance or maybe a cultural expectation. But transformation, the Greek word used here, is the root word for metamorphosis. It's an inward change, a complete and total change into something new. It's not just putting yourself up on the outside, getting that right set of clothing or whatever, changing your language or all this stuff. It's about a completely transformed person. You're different. That's why the scriptures consistently talk about a new birth and be given, being given a new heart and have, being born again. and all. That's why that's all there, because you're transformed. You're different. You're new. Conformity, I've always been anti-conformity in like super silly ways. I don't like it when people tell me I have to do it a certain way. Like, no, I'll do it my own way. And then like two hours later, I'm like, I should probably have done it their way. But by golly, I tried being a rebel for a while. I teach political science at LCCC, and so we were going through some parts of um, like how the Wyoming Constitution lays out, and that kind of stuff. And so I just was reading through to give some information to students, and I recognized, or I saw in there, that if you're a legislator in the Wyoming State House, it's required that you wear a suit and tie on the floor. So I will never run for office. <laughs> or if I do, I'm going to get, I worked at a, this, I know I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, but I worked in a men's clothing store when I was in high school and in college, and they had these, the Sansa belt pants. Some of you might remember the Sansa belt pants, which meant it had no belt, which is, Silly, but we sold a lot of them. So we had these bright lime green golf pants. And I thought, in my brain, as I'm teaching this class, I'm so anti-conform, I don't want to conform to anybody's ideas, that if I ever was elected to the, I'm not running for office, I have no plans to. If I was ever elected to an office, I'm wearing lime green on the floor. (laughs) With like a neon yellow bolo tie and say, stop me, Wyoming, what are you going to (laughs) do? And we get 
we think of conforming to Christ like that. Well, now I have to go, I got to be at church every Sunday, and I have to be here, and here's the right way to do things. And now I got to do this stuff because it's what's laid out in the list, and it's how people do it, and I, I just got to do that. But if there's no inward transformation, then it's all just a whitewashed tomb, as Jesus called the Pharisees. And I'm convinced that this issue right here is why so many people can't stand going to church, or they don't like church people, they don't want to talk about Jesus, is because it's a lot of people who have conformed themselves but they've not been transformed. They've not had a new birth. They go to church, they do the right things, they polish themselves up, they carry a Bible or whatever, they got an app. They do all the stuff you're supposed to do, but there's been no metamorphosis. And what Paul is getting at here is there has to be a metamorphosis. There has to be a change. There has to be a new person that leads to a renewal of your mind. When I first became a Christian, um, I was 17, high school senior, graduate and start studying social science. I was going to be a history major. My goal was law school. Then I kind of dabbled with, I'm going to be a PhD, and I want to teach medieval history. Um, I had all these plans. I remember Amber and I hatching. She was a, a dental hygienist. They were going to move to England, work on my dissertation. She's going to do dental hygiene in England. We had it all planned out. Kind of didn't happen that way if you haven't figured that out by now. And I remember being a saved believer in Jesus Christ at 17 and then having my entire curriculum path in education try to shoot holes in it from a historical perspective. And I remember Jesse the Body Ventura, I won't call him the governor because he was always a wrestler to me, saying on CNN that religion was for the weak-minded. And I remember saying, he's exactly right. Here I was, a 20, 21-year-old young man who had come to the logical conclusion that Jesus Christ is the only way for eternal life. If you read the Upanishads, the Bhaktivedi, if you read the Quran, if you read any of the holy texts that are out there, at the core is either it's the will of Allah, you have no hope unless it's his will, or it's effort leads to nirvana. Work real hard, live a perfect life, and I'm studying history as a social science major going, the world is a disaster. Do you know how many hundreds of thousands of people are killed on a whim by some leader? We're the worst against each other than anything else would come against us. And so I come to the very logical conclusion, it has to be Jesus, because he's the only person in the planet that stepped out of his extreme, extreme divinity into humanity as divine and came after us. We can't save ourselves, we need rescued. And so for a long time, I felt like in church you had to check your brain at the door. Study, be intellectual, read lots of things, maybe even listen to NPR, because that's what all smart people do. And then when I come to church, i got to put all that aside and just be a simpleton and just listen to the preacher, sing some songs, and go home and feel good. That's completely wrong. There is not a... De- I mean, think about the logic in this, if we can even do this. If you believe in a supreme being, creator of the universe, then Jesus Christ was the smartest man that ever lived on the planet because he was 100% God, 100% man, smartest man alive. And if God made it all, then even the idea that you can have a thought that questions him is because he gave you the ability to think the thought. So who do you think you are? Like, that's insane. He made it all. And so he doesn't want you to check your brain at the door. He wants you to bring it to him and say, help me, Lord. I don't get this. Give me the right book. Show me the right person. Give me the right experience. Let me see it. Show it to me. 
And Paul's saying that when you're transformed, your mind's renewed, then you'll get to figure out his will for your life. Am I the only one in the room that's had the thoughts, Lord, what am I supposed to do with my life? Should I move to Wyoming or not? Should we go here or not? Should I do this or not? Should I invest in this or not? Should I buy this or not? Should we Consistently, across the board, aren't we all like that? What am I going to do when I grow up? I don't know yet. Right? And Paul's telling us, if you're connected and transformed, a renewal of your mind, you're connected to God in word and in spirit, he will lead you through those things. It doesn't mean he's going to give you the blueprint and the map, but he's going to, he gave you the skills, the wisdom, he gave you the intelligence, he gave you a group of people around you to help you discern your ideas. We should all have a core group of people around us. We start having crazy ideas that we love enough <clears throat> and they love us enough that look us in the eye and go, mm-mm. And there's easy ones. Like if I came, if I went to the Tuesday lunch Bible study and all the guys are sitting around the table and I go, hey guys, I, I really, God laid this song on my heart and I think I'm going to sing a solo next week. They'd all go, mm-mm. mm-mm. Or they say, maybe we ought to talk to Amber. And she would go, mm-mm. Not happening. There's easy ones. Then there's the hard ones. Hey guys, I'm really pouring myself in all these areas over here. And this opportunity came up for me to go over here and maybe speak to this group. What do you think? <clears throat> and my wife and guys like at this, the Tuesday morning Bible study, my small group, would all look at me and go, Mike, you're kind of spread thin. You're doing this and you're doing this and you're doing this. And something's got to give. We're not saying this isn't a bad thing, but something's got to give over here. Let's, let's pray about this for a while. So when you discern God's will, it's not just, I prayed about it and we should do it. Like, have you ever had somebody drop the God card on you? Well, we're going to do this. I don't know if that's a good idea. Well, I prayed about it. Okay. Can you show me the email from God that he said okay to this? No, I can't show you that. Then I'm looking at you and your friends are looking at you saying you're insane. So maybe we should not go down that road. But he tells us that he will help us out if we give a transformed heart to him. He'll show us the way. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment each according to the measure of faith that he has assigned. We're to think straight about ourselves, not too high and not too low. And most of us kind of land on one end of this spectrum. Either over here we think really bad about ourselves. My past is full of shame. My past is full of regret. There's, I, I believe that God saved me, but he could never use me. You don't know what I've done, Mike. You don't know my thoughts. You don't know where I'm at. There's no way he could use me. And that's denying the power of the cross. And then you have the person over here that says, well, God's lucky to have me on his team. I'm pretty amazing at everything I touch. Praise be to me. And you think a little too high of yourself. A little too arrogant. But he's given you some skills. God may have even given you those skills to do those things, but you think too high. And the truth is in the middle. You should have a humility that knows that every gift you've been given is a gift from God. But you shouldn't think so low of yourself to say, well, I can't do anything because I'm awful. Paul's trying to get them to say, or get them to understand 
that they shouldn't think so high of themselves, but also don't walk around with constant self-deprecation. Don't constantly tell yourself down. You're loved by the king, and you should live that way. Well, then he leads this into a conversation about gifts and the church. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. So he's saying we're all different. We all have different roles. We're not all the same. We're not clones. We didn't become just little Christian automatons. We're very different with different personalities. That's why the scriptures are so amazing. to have 66 different books of the Bible stuck together, written in the, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but yet the personality of each author rings through. That's brilliant. You read James, direct, abrasive. You read Paul, sometimes he's tender to the church in Philippi, and sometimes he just wants to go crazy on the church in Galatia. You read all four Gospels, very systematic in Dr. Luke, and then very blunt in Mark, because John Mark wrote Mark, and it's a complete, it's a telling of the Gospel from Peter's perspective. And wasn't Peter blunt? Kind of almost to a fault? So you have all this great personality oozing out of the scriptures, and then look at what we have in this room. All the different personalities and skills together in this room, if we all function within our skill set, the grace that's been given to us, there's nothing that we can't do. Every year, well not every year, every year for several years, about seven years, my wife and I went to the Passion Conference. It's a conference of college students. (coughs) When I first went in 2005, it was about 14,000 people in Nashville. The last several years, it's been much larger. And so now, I think next year they're doing it again. It's going to be 60,000 college students from across the world will meet in the Georgia Dome in Atlanta. And it will be insane. It will be awesome. We have no plans on going. But it's, we've gone like eight times to this. And every year, they pick a few things to give money to, to try to support. And every year, they raise like three, four million dollars for these projects, for a bunch of poor college students. But when you really break the financial, like if you take the $3 million divided by $55,000, it came out to like $21 a person. So you see the big numbers. Oh, wow, look, they took off. All these things are being built and hospitals being funded and missionaries being sent out. And ah, if only we could have a a church of 50,000 people. You know what kind of monster that would be? Let's have a church. But what if we did it here? We're not, this isn't a prelude to an offering. I'm not doing that. But if we really understood that we are a force for good, if we each individually use the gifts we've been given, what we could do to change this community and change the world. Paul lays out the different kinds of gifts. He kind of summarizes them and he puts them in three categories. Speaking gifts, leading gifts, and serving gifts. If prophecy, in proportion to our faith. If service, in our serving. The, ones, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Now, is Paul saying that we all have these? No, he's not. The gift of prophecy in the Greek here in, in Romans, he's not talking about um, what we would consider like prophetic word. What it, this, the word here he uses is more it's akin to preaching, public preaching of the scriptures. Service and serving and giving, the one who teaches, Bible study, Sunday school, men's groups, women's groups, leading youth, teaching the Bible, gifts and teaching. 
The one who exhorts exhortation. Exhortation here is like encouragement, which we could translate into counseling. Has God given you a gift of empathy to help others through their pain, to help others see the truth of what's going on when they're so confused they can't even think straight? How about um, the one who contributes in generosity? This isn't necessarily just money, but it can be. Some of us have been given gifts of financial gain, and some of us haven't. So in a body of believers like this, when we have a call to go to Uganda next May, some of you may have no money to do that. There's no way you could fundraise the $1,500 for that plane ticket. But there's people sitting in this room that could put some money into an account to help fund that who would never step foot on a plane to Uganda because they're not called to go overseas. Like, that sounds great, but I think that's for you. But I can support it. I can help. I can be there for you in prayer and in support. Continue on. The one who leads with zeal. The one who acts of mercy with cheerfulness. If we put all of these together, think about how beautiful the church really is. I don't know if all of you were here early enough to eat pancakes and sausage and bacon and hash browns and mm, it was good. But there were 12 guys back here cooking for hours. And it was fun to kind of watch because I think if we put all the men that were back there, they could have pulled off some pancakes. But everybody had a job and nobody was being presumptuous and I guarantee there's one or two men that were back there was like, I can probably flip those pancakes better. <laughs> you know, I prefer my bacon to be a little crispier. I don't know, those hash browns, I think I'd add a little more. I, I guarantee that in the minds of the men that are back there, there's people thinking, I know how to do this a little different. Now, I don't know if that happened, we can ask Jack later, but it seemed to me that people were just doing their job. Hey, what can I do? Well, I'm going to do this. Okay, I'll do it. I'm not much of a cook, but I can put on a rubber glove and I can put a pancake on a plate. Cool, let's do it. How often is that? Like, that's a gift. That's an act of taking faith and putting it out there. Some of us have all of these gifts, and it gets really bad when we want a gift that God's not given us. Well, I want to be on stage. I want to be part of the praise band. You can't sing. (laughs) Well, but can I just stand up there and lip sync? Millie Vanilli did it. I don't know if that's honoring God. Well, you know, I've got a a bongo drum at home. Can I bring it? It's not going to really fit where we're going with our music. Well, but... I prayed about it, and the Lord told me. <laughs> Let's discern that together, why don't we? Or how about working with children? Like sometimes after you look at a thing with gifts, and you want to work with kids, <coughs> and you really deep inside can't stand children. But I'm going to do it because I'm supposed to serve. It's okay. We don't want you serving in areas you shouldn't be in. So how do we discern that? It's not that hard. When people see it in you, Man, every time we do this Bible study, you seem to have some like some pearl of wisdom, some nugget. Like you really, have you ever thought about leading one of your own? Well, I don't know. I never thought about it. Man, I see it in you. Have you ever thought about serving in this capacity? Because people seem to come to you with their problems. You ever thought about going into counseling? Like maybe get a degree, maybe not. I don't know. Have you ever? Could you work with these people? I don't know. Maybe I, I've never thought of that. And how beautiful would it be if we really did all connect with our gifts and we went everywhere with it? Sometimes when we don't allow people in, we crush things. 
So several years ago, um, when we were on staff in West Virginia, we started a men's ministry. And we had started having some men's retreats. And the first one we ever had had like 14 guys in it. Then the next year it was about 18. And the next year it was about 20. And it kind of plateaued there. And then I left. And the last retreat that I had the honor of going back and speaking at, there were 75 men there. Who do you think the problem was? I know where my gifts are, and then I have, I feel the weight of responsibility, things I'm not gifted at. So I'm supposed to, I'm the paid pastor dude, I'm supposed to plan this thing, and administratively it was a nightmare. Marketing, it was a nightmare. Didn't promote it, did nothing. If you want me to show up and preach, I love that. Every day of the week, we'll do it. Same thing has happened here. We had a men's retreat where it was me, Pete, Dan, and one other person. We had a, we, it wasn't a retreat, it was more like a weekend getaway. Why? I tried to plan the whole thing. It's my job, my responsibility. I should be doing this. And we had fun. I'm not saying it was a bad thing. We had a great time growing to know each other and getting to know each other, but I'm the hindrance. Well, it took me going back to this river in West Virginia last fall, same spot that I'd been before, crying out to God, going, what's the problem, Lord? Like, I leave this place, and there's men doing nights of worship. There's men growing in. What's, what's the problem? Why can't I do this? Why can't I make this happen in Wyoming? Why can't I get some guys? Why can't I? And then it hit me. It's you, idiot. Get out of the way and let some people lead. Let some people serve. Let some people, this isn't your gift. So we're planning a retreat in September, a men's retreat at Snowy Mountain Lodge. And the guys from the Sunday or Tuesday morning or Tuesday afternoon Bible study, anybody else wants to help plan it, we're all going to plan it together because I'm awful at this stuff. So I'm going to say, hey, you want to do this? You want to do this? You want to organize this? You want to do this? We're going to go for it. And it's really sad for me that I had to go to a place of great joy to get a kick in the teeth to understand where I fail. But you know what? He's going to take me through it. Paul's trying to get us to see in Romans 12, 1 to 8, that we're all part of a body that should be together. And what I get to do this fall, I got to go use what I'm gifted at in a jungle town in Uganda to teach hermeneutics. Something I'm gifted at. Something I know that I'm skilled at. Not in an arrogant way, but in a way that I know this is how God's wired me. Now, if you ask me to plan all of that, oh, disaster. And so next May, my plan is for us to go back. I'll go back and teach, and I'm praying that some of you will come along with me. And we'll do a bunch of different stuff. But I can't plan all that and organize it because I can't do it all. So it's going to be the skills of the people that feel called to go serve, and we'll see what the kingdom does. And isn't that the beauty of the church? We take the professed word of God, we take Easter Sunday that Jesus gave all of himself to us, we in turn give all of ourselves to him, and we capitalize and we receive the greatest joy we've ever known. You can't tell me it's not fun to go serve with other people. It's a blast. People you might not even really like, 
and all of a sudden, you start liking them. Because you're sweating with them, serving with them, hanging out with them, you get to know about them a little more. They get to know a little bit about more of you. And that doesn't happen unless we look at the very first part of 12.1. It happens because of the mercies. Paul says it very clear. I appeal to you, brothers. I beseech you. Therefore, by the mercies of God, present yourselves, your bodies, living sacrifice, holy and acceptable God, which is your spiritual act of worship. It's your spiritual worship. To submit your lives back to him. He saved you. Your life is his anyway. He'll let you live 110 years or he'll take your life tomorrow. Your life is his. So until that happens, we should serve him with everything we got. We're called by God to give all of ourselves to glorify his name. So on Easter Sunday, there's kind of two things to drive home. Do you know the king? He loves you. He's waiting with open arms for you to come into his presence. He's waiting for you to tear down the walls and let him have your heart. He's been wooing you to himself. You're not just here because it's Easter Sunday. I mean, you could be hunting eggs somewhere or eating lunch, and instead you're here. You're here for a reason. You're here because God has brought you here, either of your own volition or because you got drug here. And maybe today's the day that he's going to open your heart to the truth of the gospel, that he loves you. For me, it was, un, it was unmistakable, complete and total love in spite of myself. For some of us, it's a more of an intellectual journey sometimes too, and he can handle it all. And for those of us who have been walking with Jesus for a while, we shouldn't wait for Easter to proclaim he's alive. We shouldn't wait for Easter to walk around and tell people he's risen. We should put our faith and trust in the grace that saved us, and we should serve like crazy out of the truth that he loves us. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this time that we've had together on Easter Sunday. A beautiful day to reflect your sacrifice for us on the cross and for us to come together to grow closer as a church family because you saved us. So I pray, Lord, that everyone in this room, everyone in this room knows you. I would love for that to be a fact that we've gathered together to celebrate the king that we all love. But I'm really not that naive. So Lord, if there's someone here who has not been claimed by you, I pray you grab them right now. Grab their hearts. Save them. Prove to everyone around that they are one of the elect, that you've chosen them to be your child, and you would do that now. Help us, Lord, put down our walls and our barriers to the call of your spirit. And then, Lord, for those who know you, let us walk out of here with a vigor, a boldness, because you're alive. That we would jump for joy because we're saved and loved by the creator of the universe. That you spoke everything into existence, and then you came for us. Help us, Lord, to let that be the complete and total truth of our lives that we would live completely for you. We love you. Amen.